Welcome to the Edgar Rice Burroughs mini podcast number nine. These short podcasts are meant to supplement the full-length podcasts I do with Jess Terrell and Scott Stewart, in which we uh, uh, look in-depth at one of the works of Edgar Rice Burroughs. My name is Tim DeForest. I'm the author of several books about what I call pre-digital pop culture, such as old-time radio, pulp magazine, newspaper comic strips, and so on. I keep a blog at Comics, Old Time Radio, and other cool stuff, which will also provide you a link to my Amazon.com author page if you're curious about my books. In today's mini-podcast, we are going to be looking at the first chapter of the 1912 novel Tarzan of the Apes, the first novel in which Tarzan uh, appears. Now, This mini-podcast is the first in a series in which I'll be doing brief discussions on each chapter of that book. I want to talk about the elements that I think helped the novel become such a classic in adventure literature and why Tarzan has become such an iconic character. And he is indeed iconic. Tarzan, like Superman, Sherlock Holmes, and Mickey Mouse, is a character that literally every single of member of Western civilization knows about, even if they've never read any of the books or seen any of the movies. Even outside our immediate culture, you'd be hard put to find anyone on the planet who doesn't know the name. So what makes Tarzan so iconic? Let's dive into chapter one of the novel and see if we can begin to figure it out. Now, first a warning. I'm going to assume that most people listening to this are already fans of Burroughs' novels. Be forewarned that if you haven't read them yet, I'll be including spoilers, both of this novel and occasionally of later novels in the series. If you haven't read Tarzan of the Apes in a while, I would recommend that you take 15 minutes to reread chapter one before listening. I'll be assuming that you are familiar with the events described in the chapter while I discuss them. Now, the first chapter in the book is titled Out to Sea, but there's a few paragraphs to set up the story before we join Tarzan's parents on, on, on board a ship. Edgar Rice Burroughs mentions how he himself first heard the story of Tarzan. Quote, I had this story from one who had no business to tell it to me or to any other. I may credit the seductive influence of an old vintage upon the narrator for the beginning of it and my own skeptical incredulity during the days which followed for the balance of the strange tale. Now, this is a common conceit in Burroughs' novels. His first novel, A Princess of Mars, was related to him by his uncle John Carter, who was that book's protagonist. Within the universe of Edgar Rice Burroughs, he's an historian, not a writer of fiction. He's always learning of these stories via diaries, personal accounts, telepathic contact from other planets, or radio contact with other worlds. Burroughs is simly passing on stories of others to us. In this case, after he does some more research and becomes convinced that Tarzan is real, he mentions that he changes the name of the main characters. Now, in that portion of my brain that is convinced that Burroughs actually was an historian and all the stories are indeed true, I try to take everything he says as canon. But here's an exception to that personal rule. Tarzan, by golly, is John Clayton Lord Greystoke. It's not a fake name given to him by Burroughs to protect his identity. It's his real name. And that's his dad's name as well. The idea that this is a pseudonym just doesn't sit well with him, with me. Um, I know this is a personal and kind of meaningless peccadilia, but in my mind, 
Despite what Tarzan says, at the, despite what Burroughs says at the beginning of the novel, John Clayton is the real Tarzan's real name. Anyway, as far as, far as telling a good story and setting up the characters, here's what I consider important about chapter one. First, Burroughs does an excellent job of showing us the brutal conditions aboard the ship, setting up the possibility of mutiny in a believable fashion. When things turn exceptionally violent in the next chapter, it is a logical extension of what we are reading here. Burroughs also wisely inserts a Chekhov gun, Chekhov's gun into the chapter in the form of actual guns. Clayton's revolvers are stolen from his cabin, but he mentions that he has some rifles stored away with the rest of his baggage. That does him no immediate good, but it tells us why he has rifles and ammunition available to him when he and his wife are stranded in Africa. Perhaps most importantly, Burroughs shows us several things about both John and his wife Alice that establish them as brave and moral people. Clayton doesn't hesitate to intervene when the captain is about to murder a crewman. Later on, as the situation grows more dangerous, he remains cool and level-headed. As for Alice, well, when her husband first considers not telling the captain about the impending mutiny to protect her, she replies, quote, Duty is duty, John, and no amount of sophistries may change that. I would be a poor wife for an English lord if I were to be responsible for his shirking a plain duty. I realize the danger which must follow, but I can face it with you, unquote. So she will not allow him to shirk his duty to tell the captain, the established authority aboard the ship, about the impending mutiny, even if this might place her in danger. She's just awesome. She's also intelligent and quick thinking herself, as she demonstrates when she and John see the note being pushed under their cabin door. Like many of the ladies we meet in Burroughs' novels, she does need rescuing from time to time, but she doesn't lack at all in courage, intelligence, and wit. Now, why is this important? After all, John and Alice are only around for a few chapters before coming to their tragic ends, and Tarzan won't even remember them. But Burroughs wants to establish that Tarzan comes from a noble bloodline, to, his, to quote the novel, Clayton, quote, Clayton was the type of Englishman that one likes best to associate with the noblest monuments of historic achievement upon a thousand victorious battlefields, a strong, virile man, mentally, morally, and physically. In stature, he was above the average height. His eyes were gray, his features regular and strong, his carriage that of perfect, robust health, influenced by his years of army training, unquote. So Tarzan comes from good physical stock. So his eventual superb physical conditioning can be attributed to this as well as his upbringing by the apes. But Burroughs also uses his noble bloodline for another reason. Burroughs has to have a justification later on in the novel for why Tarzan chooses not to eat human flesh, although his upbringing would have taught him that there was nothing wrong with this. A later novel in the series, Jungle Tales of Tarzan flashes back to Tarzan's time with the apes, and in, and in that novel, Tarzan declined to have a romantic relationship with a she-ape, even though, once again, his upbringing would have led him to do so. Tarzan's inherited instincts, a product of his bloodline, is what kept him from crossing those lines. In this chapter, Burroughs is setting up the justification for this by presenting his birth parents in such a positive light. Now, if I remember correctly, Burroughs freely admitted that he knew this wouldn't be the case in real life. 
that given his upbringing, Tarzan would have engaged in cannibalism and bestiality because he would never have been taught these things were wrong. Morality, after all, is something we have to be taught. It's not something that comes naturally. Babysit a toddler for more than a few minutes, and you know this to be true. But within the Burroughs fictional universe, inherited moral instincts are simply that strong. And I actually agree with Burroughs' choices here. Had Burroughs dealt with these issues in a more real-life manner? Well, first, he probably couldn't have gotten the novel published in 1912. But it also would have made Tarzan a different and probably less appealing character. Now, before concluding for today, I must include a My Wife is Awesome moment. My wife, Angela, who is a combination of Jane Porter, Dejah Thoris, and Dion the Beautiful, is rereading Tarzan of the Apes along with me and had a few trenchant observations of her own. She thought it was a little unlikely that a lord traveling to a colonial outpost would be stuck chartering a ship that's essentially a wretched hive of scum and villainy rather than have more reliable transportation available. She also thought that Alice would probably have had a maid traveling with her. In both cases, Angela acknowledges that these are not plot holes, just unusual aspects of the situation in which the Greystokes find themselves, designed by Burroughs to facilitate the story and, and to avoid including extraneous characters. She also proved herself to be an awesome wife, by having an extended conversation with me about John and Alice's options at the end of the chapter. After the captain refuses to listen to John's warning and the note is delivered under the cabin door, the couple decide their only option is to remain neutral and play whatever cards are dealt to them after the mutiny. Angela thought they might have had another option, which was to approach Black Michael and ask him to delay the mutiny until John and Alice were ashore in some place safe. They would have been depending on Black Michael's gratitude to John for saving his life when doing this. Angela acknowledged this was a long shot, but felt that a possible, albeit remote, chance of getting them to safety, where it, that, that it had that remote chance, whereas being aboard after the mutiny didn't provide them with any good options at all. Now, I had to disagree with her for several reasons. First, I'm not sure they knew about at this point that Black Michael would be the new captain after the mutiny. Second, it would go against the warning in the note not to talk to anyone about the mutiny. Black Michael's reaction might have been, well, you are my friends, but if you're going to interfere with the mutiny, I've got to feed you to the sharks now. Third, Black Michael probably wouldn't have been able to convince the rest of the crew to delay the mutiny. And even if he did, the next time an officer acted in a brutal manner, the mutiny would have happened anyway. On this last point, I'm actually insufferably proud of myself that I was able to cite an example from another adventure novel, Treasure Island. If a charismatic leader like Long John Silver could barely maintain any discipline among a crew of pirates, and in the end failed to do so, then the thuggish Black Michael stood no chance at all of keeping enough control over, his, over the crew to keep them from mutinying as soon as possible. And finally, the crew couldn't allow John and Alice ashore before the mutiny because they would have been free to tell responsible authorities about it without the threat of death being held over their heads. The, my whole conversation about this with, with Angela, though, was wonderfully geeky, and I wish we had recorded it to share with you. Anyway, that's it for this mini podcast. Chapter one of the novel ends with the mutiny about to break, aboard, uh, break out aboard the ship. I'll be back soon with the discussion of chapter two, 
and we'll see how that plays out.